Jiva Theatre Center in Rochester, New York, this is Out of the Rehearsal Hall. Theatre is an art form that celebrates togetherness. Since we can't be together right now, we're reaching out to theatre makers around the country to see how they're doing, what they're doing, and what they're looking forward to returning to when we get back into our rehearsal halls. My name is Jenny Werner, and I'm Jiva's literary director and resident dramaturg. Each episode will feature a Jiva stage manager and their favorite rehearsal room calls, and I'll be joined by another Jiva staff member for a conversation with a theater maker about their life out of the rehearsal hall. Stand by backstage. Stand by lights and sound. This week I'm joined by Carolyn Pike, Jiva's former stage operations manager. Carolyn, thank you so much for co-hosting today. Of course. Thanks for asking me. Of course. So until about a year ago, is that right? You were Jiva's uh, stage operations manager. So can you tell us what what does a stage operations manager do? Um, so the stage operations manager, as it was when I was there, was really in charge of running the deck during the shows. So from the time I returned in 14, um, to the time I left about a year ago, I ran pretty much every show backstage. Uh, there were a couple, there were like a handful I didn't do because I happened to be on maternity leave. And that was kind of a running joke that I was not here for Spamalot, but everyone told me stories of Spamalot like I had been there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I helped run the automation. I helped, uh, I worked with the uh, scene shop and I worked closely with Eric Benson, who was the technical director to get the set in and learn kind of the ins and outs of the set before any of the actors came to the set so that I had a general idea of what they were gonna be walking into. Um, I ran most of the automation if the show had automation on it. I helped program all of that. So um, I also worked closely with stage management and uh, the production assistants that happened to be on the shows at the time to make sure that everything backstage was running properly. Um, and then I helped train any of the crew that came in. I also uh, hired any of the, those crew as well. And what would you say, like, it may, it may be hard to look, to, to answer this question, um, but what would you say are the most sort of rewarding parts of that kind of job? Uh, it was actually really fun because my job was never the same from day to day. And it alternated every month or so because every show required different things of me backstage and what we happened to be doing. So, and then getting just to meet all the different actors that came through was great because I formed a lot of friendships and bonds. I'm still very good friends with several of the actors that had come through that I've worked with. And it was always really fun to have actors return that we had worked with in the past because it was like just picking up and it was like old hat. We had already had a little, a short, you know, a small talk initiated already. So that was fun too kind of just pick up and see everyone again. Yeah, absolutely. And you sort of alluded to um, just a second ago, uh, talking about being on maternity leave when, you know, during some shows, is it, um, and, and I know that part of the reason that you are no longer at Jiva is because you have two small children um, and it's hard to manage a life with a family and theater. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, about sort of what some of those challenges are? Yeah, um, the biggest, it was, for me, it, we, 
I was able to make it work with one. I had my first in uh, the August of 15. So I missed the beginning of that 15, 16 season, which was spam a lot in red. Um, and it was hard. It, the hardest thing about just being pregnant backstage was the, it, like the morning sickness that you have because you're constantly on your feet, you're constantly moving and you don't really have a lot of time to manage that. <laughs> but my husband works at Excellus, so he's like a nine to fiver. So it was actually fairly easy for us with one because he would, I would watch our son during the day and then he would come home. We would kind of do like a trade-off and then I would go into work. So one of us was always with him. Um, but we would only see, like, I would actually only see my husband on Mondays because I was working the rest of the week. Mm -hmm. um, so that was hard. Um, and then with two, I just found that it was very difficult to manage because I had a toddler and a newborn. And just the time that I had to put in um, because the stage operations manager position is mostly nights and weekends. And I'm like, I want to be able to like see my kids and, you know, not have to worry about holiday scheduling and all of that. So, you know, it, it is a big time commitment on both sides. And I wanted to be able to really focus on one. And I didn't want my job to suffer because I was focusing more on my kids. Right. Right. It's such a hard decision to make. It was very hard because I've been, you know, this is something that I've been doing since I just got out of college. So I've been doing it for over a decade. So like I've had a lot of backstage experience and it was, it was kind of a struggle kind of finding my way with one. And then with two, I would just, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do the time commitment anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Totally makes sense. But I miss um, it. It's like, it's definitely a part of me and I miss it like every day. Yeah. I can totally understand that. Um, it's, it's such a theater can be such a rewarding life, but it is also very demanding. Yeah. Well, our audiences at Jiva may remember that, <laughs> um, in the other Josh Cohen, which was a show yeah. that we did a couple of years ago, you actually, uh, were featured, um, <laughs> in the pre-show. <laughs> And then also there was one particular performance where um, you were on stage for about 15 minutes in the middle of the show. I was. <laughs> Can you talk about both aspects of that? So when we first found out that Steve Rosen was coming to do the other Josh Cohen, I was teasing him about how I wanted to rob his house. And then he decided to make that happen. So I was one of the burglars well, in the pre-show segment. <laughs> and we should say that the story of the other Josh Cohen begins with the character of Josh Cohen returning home and discovering that his apartment has been robbed. That happens during the half hour leading into the show. That's right. So my show actually started half an hour during when everyone's coming in to be seated and myself and my other uh, robber, Silas Holtz, who is wonderful and has been in Christmas Carol forever, um, would come in and we kind of just started taking stuff. We had, you know, a very set routine of what we would kind of take when and, you know, we would get, whenever we came off stage, we would get calls from our stage manager. And if we had to like hold for any reason, we had to just go and improvise something else. And <laughs> You had to improvise taking something different? Yeah. We had to like, you know, slow down a little bit or like 
you're super out of time, just grab as much as you can and get out of there um, because everything had to be gone by the time we started. So they just kept adding stuff to the set until we filled half an hour's worth of robbing an apartment. And <laughs> people would come up to the edge of the stage and talk to us and we would just have to ignore them. And they were like, hey, leave everything alone. And like the ushers would be watching us. It was very fun. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, during one of the performances, one of the, if I remember correctly, the kitchen light opened up and the lid was like swinging. And like we heard the audience reaction and there, because there was automation, I had a monitor backstage so I could see the video of the stage and I saw it and I had to go out there. And Steve was great about it because he didn't really know what was happening. So he was just kind of improving with the audience when we were trying to fix it. And eventually I had to come out with a ladder and go up and get down the lid of the light fixture. And as I'm leaving, I just like turned around and waved at him. And he looked at me and he went, what, you didn't take enough of what was in the apartment? And I just shook my head <laughs> when I walked up the stage. <laughs> so we were able to play it off. But, you know, we always hope that there's never that kind of a technical issue that I have to be seen. Because I always felt that if you don't know that I exist while the show is running, then I've done my job correctly. And if I have to go out there and troubleshoot something, it's like a last resort because I would rather not be seen. That's why I wear black <laughs> and I'm not an actor. <laughs> but on the other hand, theater is live. Yeah. And I actually think the audiences love it when something goes wrong and they have to, you know, they watch theater artists, whether they're on stage or backstage or, you know, in a booth that we don't even see, we see them sort of solving the problem in front of our, in front of our eyes. And that's so exciting. Oh yeah. We had a, there was one show in particular that it actually happened a lot that I had to go out there and just troubleshoot everything because with, uh, when we did good people, we had four interlocking turntables that had to turn oh, in yes. a very specific order kind of like gears in order to get them to work and at some point our automation system just didn't like it anymore and I had to go out and I had to talk to our automation um, operator backstage to get them to turn to get the right stuff and you know you could hear the audience kind of murmuring to themselves and then when everything got going they would give us applause and they would be like <laughs> yeah good work and like people came up to me after the show at the bar and they were like you did great that was awesome thank you so much <laughs> So like they were super appreciative and they loved seeing us, but I'm like, it's just so stressful when yeah. that kind of thing happens. Absolutely. I don't want that to happen. And it just kind of puts in a little added pressure on everything that's going on. Oh my goodness. Yes, it does. Well, speaking of added pressure right now, we are in a pressurized sort of situation. Yeah. Um, this COVID-19 virus is um, making us all behave in different ways and sort of reinvent our lives. Um, and I'm curious how your family is dealing with all of this. Uh, my, my poor five-year-old, he doesn't understand why he can't see his friends at preschool. Oh, so that's hard. Um, yeah. my youngest is 17 months, so she doesn't really know what's going on. She does, however, now recognize the sound my phone makes when we're starting to video chat with my mom. So she like <laughs> hears the little jingle on my phone. And she comes running over really excited because she knows that Graham is going to be on the other side of the phone. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. Um, but yeah, I've learned that preschool Zoom meetings are like the highlight of my week because <laughs> everyone should experience nine five-year-olds on a Zoom meeting. It is oh. chaos. <laughs> 
I want to experience that. <laughs> Can so I zoom fun. in? It's so fun. They played Simon Says today and it was amazing. Oh, I love that so but much. But yeah, my husband's working from home and he is generally upstairs most of the day and my cat supervises him. So oh, we just kind of, we just kind of roll with the punches right now and we're hoping that, you know, my son can actually start kindergarten in the fall and we're just trying to keep him going. We have some worksheets that we've been doing with him, getting him to learn his letters and stuff. But I work at an ice cream shop now and we've been open this whole time. I'm never thought that working at an ice cream shop would technically make me a frontline worker. <laughs> essential. Ice cream is essential. Yeah. You would be surprised. We've been so busy. <laughs> I can't imagine. People have just been coming and buying all sorts of stuff. Well, our guest today on the podcast is Madeline Lambert. Um, and we both first met Madeline uh, during our production of The Agitators. Can you talk about, um, I don't know, talk about your, your friendship with Madeline and how that kind of developed? So The Agitators, because it's only a two-hander, was rare for us in the fact that the crew outnumbered the cast. So there were there were far more of us backstage than were actually them on stage. So, and I spent my entire show in the trap room. So I was essentially in the hole operating the um, automation from down there because we had to load um, the elevator lift as it came up and down. So really, I initially, my first real interaction with Madeline and with Cedric were to be like, okay, there's going to be this great big hole on stage and I'm going to be moving stuff and I'm not right there to like help you guys out with this, please let me know if you don't feel safe. Like safety was really my main concern. But because it was just the two of them, they and they're so lovely. And, you know, by the time they really got down to us, they were, they were in it, they knew the material, which was kind of changing a little bit still. So we just wanted to give them the most comfortable environment for them to create what they were doing. So you know, we were very friendly and Madeline and I just kind of hit it off right away. We we're, and we're still pretty good friends. She was up, I don't know, in the fall sometime for a, for a play reading and we went out for lunch and, you know, she loves seeing pictures of the kids and she like stalks my daughter on Facebook because they're friends and they're gingers. So it's fun. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, me, Madeline just kind of hit it off and she's, you know, one of those actors that I just kind of instantly had to bond with. It was really nice. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you're able to co-host this conversation with her today. Yeah, I'm excited. So let's tell everybody a little bit about her. Madeline Lambert is an equity actress based in Chicago. Her work includes productions of The Humans at Jiva and Syracuse Sage, 20,000 Leagues Under the Seas at Looking Glass Theater Company, The Agitators at Jiva and Alabama Shakespeare Festival, How I Learned to Drive at Cleveland Playhouse and Syracuse Stage, Alabama Story at Alabama Shakespeare Festival, and much more. Madeline's TV credits include roles on Empire and Chicago PD. Madeline received her MFA in acting from Brown University Trinity Rep and her BA from Duke University. She's a graduate of an instructor at the school at Steppenwolf where she teaches text analysis for actors. She's been an adjunct faculty in the theater studies department at Duke University where she co-created and co-taught a course, Stories for Social Change, Confronting Sexual and Domestic Violence at Duke and in Durham. 
Madeline was the program director of the Duke in Chicago Startup Arts Entrepreneurship Program, is a performance coach with Stand and Deliver, and teaches public speaking to graduate fellows at the Robert Penn Warren Center at Vanderbilt University. Madeline is also an award-winning audiobook narrator. What do you say? Should we call Madeline? Absolutely. This is Places, Please. Places for the top. Madeline, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's such a great uh, excuse um, to be able to, to be, honestly, the whole idea of this podcast was to give me an excuse to be connecting with everybody that I love across the country. So it's so wonderful to see you and be able to chat with you. Thank you. I, I definitely miss all of my friends in Rochester. And I'm glad you all are having a sunny 70 degree day. It's so nice, and I hope it stays this way. Good. <laughs> I want to start with the most controversial subject I possibly can. I know sure. you are a very serious runner. What's your favorite running shoe? So I've, um, I've worn a lot of different kinds of running shoes. Um, and actually, I, I, it makes me think, like, what shoe was I wearing when I ran the Rochester Marathon? Because before I met you all and met all my friends at Jiva, um, right when I showed up to Rochester, I ran that Rochester marathon, which is right. hard. It's not for the faint of heart. Hardest marathon I've ever done. Lots of hills. Beautiful though. Beautiful course. Um, I can't remember what shoe I ran, uh, I wore when I ran that, but, um, right now I'm, I'm wearing a new balance 880. Um, and, uh, it, it's working for me. You know, uh, I, I rotate, I change them out. I'm not uh, optimistic that I'll ever be a barefoot runner. You know, you see a lot of those like barefoot runners in marathon courses. And, um, I don't think that's in the cards for me. Yeah. It seems really extreme. It is extreme. I mean, already running long distance is extreme. So why make it even more extreme by being barefoot? It's a great question. Yeah. One I will never know the answer to. Yeah. I know that that marathon in Rochester goes right by my house. I'm right after that really hard hill in Irondequoit. I mean, where were you that day then? I needed I was, you I, out there. I didn't know I'm, I needed you. <laughs> I'm sure I was going, woohoo, you could do it. <laughs> didn't know each other yet. That's right. That's right. All right. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, everything else will be easy, easy questions. So right. let's start talking about theater. Um, do you remember the first play you ever saw? You know, I... Um, I do. I, uh, when I was a kindergartner, I, um, I saw a play at stage one, um, which is a professional children's theater in Louisville. And at the time, the artistic director was Moses Goldberg, who's uh, a writer for uh, young audiences. He's, he's kind of known as the father of participatory theater. And it was, um, it was a production of Jack and the Beanstalk. And I remember sitting on the floor because it wasn't really in like a proscenium kind of theater or any sort of like traditional um, space. And I just have a memory of one of the actors turning to this audience, the audience of children and saying, okay, now um, you all are going to be the vines and the stalks. And so I remember my body participating. I mean, I remember like making my body into a vine and a stalk and I, and that was like a pretty magical moment and not to be, not to be like, um, witty, but sort of that was when the seed I think started to be planted. <laughs> That's incredible. 
yeah what a great story yeah. yeah it was um and that and that really actually that experience sort of kicked off um a longer relationship that i had with stage one um and Moses actually years later would direct me in a production of William Gibson's The Miracle Worker. Oh, wow. And um, and that was when I was uh, in middle school and that was a professional equity production. Um, and it toured all over Kentucky, um, including rural coal mining towns. And um, I think that was really sort of the like, wow, th this is my community, this is my world. Um, Cause I was working with professional actors and, um, the relationship I formed with the woman playing Andy Sullivan was pretty singular. What's the most rewarding thing about acting for you? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, I, you know, there's the, there's the obvious, right? It's the connection with the audience. It's the liveness of it. It's the uh, community that forms with the other actors on the stage. It's, and, and not just the actors on the stage, but I think you know, um, Jenny, you and I have a special relationship because we worked closely together as an act actor and a dramaturg. I mean, it, it's sort of that, the whole community that, and, and you too, Carolyn, I mean, you worked on um, all the tech for the show that I did at Jeeva. So the bonds that, and friendships that form are pretty singular and remarkable. Um, and I would also say, if this is an odd answer to this because I don't know if it's necessarily, when you think about satisfying, you don't necessarily think about um, how extraordinarily difficult acting is. And I think that's actually one of the rewarding things about it for me is that I never feel like I've ever gotten it. Like I never feel totally satisfied in my work um, or totally satisfied in what I've done. And that I think propels me to sort of stay rigorous and stay present and really um, think about what what being in process means. Um, I think for a long time I thought about process as what happens in the rehearsal hall and then it sort of like siphons off and stops and becomes about performance. And now I really try to think about how I'm in process from, you know, the audition through um, the run, through the, through the sort of like end of that chapter, end of that production. Yeah. That's great that that sort of that propels you forward that search for for getting it for for being better and better that continual it doesn't stop it doesn't stop and I think that's actually why I started doing marathons because there's a there's a real correlation between you know I'm never gonna run like a you know a two thirty five marathon right but I can always sort of like be in be in pursuit. Um, it's sort of the the journey and the the endurance of it and the longevity longevity of it that uh, those two interests of mine I think really speak to each other. Yeah, that's great. Where talk a little bit about you know if there was something from your training that was really helpful in getting you um, I don't know to have that kind of outlook to that continual reaching. I mean, there's so many, like if I'm thinking about my training from a technical point of view, there, there's so many things that I can, and can touch on. But even beyond training, I think being curious about the world is, is critical. Um, 
you know, you can, you can sort of like sequester yourself and just read about acting and read about theater. And I don't know that that, I think that's important and critical, but I don't know that totally serves you as an artist. I mean, mm. reading the news, having interests, like I have interests in medieval Renaissance studies, like, and I know that's weird and nerdy and esoteric, but like reading about that sort of fuels me. Um, while I've been in quarantine, I'm taking this Coursera course on like medieval women's spirituality. <laughs> And I, and I don't know what's, I don't know what will happen with that, but I'm sure somewhere that will become productive and useful beyond just my own self-interest, um, you know, in terms of how that connects to my, my art and my work. Um, I think that the sort of deep um, mantra or ethos that I lead with as an actor, and this came out of training and technique, is that it's not about you, it's about telling the story. Mm-hmm. And I think as actors, it can be so frightening, scary, frankly, um, to do what we do. And it takes tremendous courage and, um, and it's easy to like go inward and it's easy to, to beat yourself up and to sort of self analyze and self critique. And so what sort of keeps me humble and keeps me, um, from doing that, frankly, is, is really just saying, you know, every time I approach a rehearsal or I approach a a performance, I really think about, okay, this is about telling a story. There's no room for like my ego and whether I'm a good actor or a bad actor. I've just got to tell the story. So you're also a teacher. I Um, am. And uh, you've been teaching classes for Duke University as well as Steppenwolf. How did you start teaching? Um, It's funny because when I was in grad school, I I got my MFA at at Brown Trinity Rep and um, you know, I was young when I went to grad school and I, I sort of had this uh, attitude that, that I was never going to teach, um, that like teaching is, teaching's not for me. I had some sort of like, I, I don't know, idea about teaching that wasn't real. Um, and uh, come to find out teaching is uh, extremely rewarding, <laughs> extremely challenging. Um, and I love it, actually. Um, and I think when you're an artist and you teach, especially if you're teaching your process, if you're teaching acting, it makes you stay on your game because you're constantly asking yourself, am I, am I actually doing what I'm teaching? Um, and do I believe in what I'm teaching? So I think it's a really invaluable, um, skill for, for an artist to teach. Um, how it came about is, is really interesting. I mean, uh, there were sort of two different courses with, with, uh, teaching at school, the school at Steppenwolf, I, uh, I had a remarkable teacher. Um, K. Todd Freeman taught me uh, Meisner technique and Kimberly Senior, who I know as a director and has directed at Jiva, was teaching me text analysis. And these are sort of giants um, in terms of teachers. And I remember just wondering, how do, they, how do you teach what, what you're doing? How do you teach this? How do you articulate what we're doing? And I asked if I could assist them. And, and that's sort of the takeaway I would say for all young actors and young artists is you can't complain unless you ask for what you want. I mean, they had really no reason to offer me that opportunity, but I just said, can I, can I learn from you? And most people are pretty flattered when you ask them that. Um, and so that's where that seed, that interest in teaching and that seed started. And then in terms of the Duke job, um, once I got out of grad school, I think I realized that um, having agency over 
your work and what you do as an artist is so important. And at that time, um, I was getting auditions for roles and um, mainly roles in television that frankly, I, I didn't interest me um, because I, you know, what stories do you want to put out in the world? I think is, is really important to think about. And if, and if you don't love it and um, it doesn't interest you and it doesn't sort of further your own beliefs as a human, then like step away from that. Um, and uh, I knew that, that I had more, that I had more to give and I was more interested in theater than sort of beyond the commercial uh, route. And so uh, the Duke job came about because I, I went to Duke as an undergrad and my mentor there, I think saw my restlessness and um, she asked me to come up with a course that um, bridged the relationship between a theater-based course that bridged the relationship between Duke and Durham. And sort of at that moment when all that was happening, I had gone with Eric N, who's a playwright, um, with a group of uh, writers and artists to Rwanda to study how um, the Rwandan artists were uh, creating work post-genocide. And that was a huge watershed moment for me. That just sort of opened up, oh my gosh, theater as activism, theater as social change, theater as um, a way to actually create policy change. And so that's where the course uh, Stories for Social Change Confronting Sexual and Domestic Violence at Duke and Durham was born out of. And it was also born out of my own um, critical interest and belief in, in creating a course around that because there was a real lapse in that conversation on the campus. Now, what have you, what have you learned from teaching that course? Because that's an incredible kind of subject matter to try to tackle. Yeah. Um, you know, I, it's hard to even put into language what I've, what I've learned from that course. Um, I would say the biggest thing is that the arts can affect pol deep policy change. So the classes was really rooted in a um, theory into performance-based arc. And the students would go out into the community and interview um, policymakers, lobbyists, survivors, service providers, activists, and then they would take those stories and perform, create um, a series of monologues. And a lot of the students also were writing their own stories. And um, there was a public performance that brought both Duke and Durham community members together. And actually, that those performances, because the classes run several semesters, those performances actually changed Duke's um, sexual misconduct policy, um, which was astonishing. And and that is, and I am not taking credit for that work at all. I'm I'm giving my students all of that credit because they are the ones who courageously stood up and told their own stories and told the community stories. So, um, yeah, I I think it, it it's real. Arts can change policy. Um, and there's tremendous power in sharing your story. Absolutely. That's an incredible testimony to, yeah, to the power of theater and the power of story. Welcome back, everyone. Let's pick it up where we left off. Well, let's, let's talk about the agitators a little bit. All right. So Rochester first met you, as we've talked about, in Matt Smart's play, The Agitators, in which you played Susan B. Anthony. And uh, how, how did you feel about taking on such an iconic figure in our history? Terrified. 
frankly. Um, I felt terror, actually. And then this like odd sense of destiny. Um, it, it, I still remember preparing the audition for Susan B. Anthony. And I don't think I knew I got, I, I didn't, I don't think I, I went in knowing I had it, but I, I there was something about the writing and, um, you know, Matt Spar, such a gifted, wonderful writer. Mm-hmm. Um, something about the writing and something about her life and her story, which I really knew very little about, uh, frankly, when I, when I was preparing for the first audition for it. But there just felt like this connection. Like I was, I was working on something at the right time in my life. Um, and it might have been because I had been teaching at Duke and I sort of had this activist identity that was really sort of cementing for myself. Um, and, and a real understanding, like I said earlier, about having agency over the stories I tell. And I was like, oh my God, this, this, is, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm terrified, but this is what I'm supposed to do. And then when I uh, met Matt and I met Logan in the audition room, we all, I think, sort of knew like, okay, we, we, we've arrived. This is, this, is, this is right. This is right. This works. Um, so terror and and destiny are the two words I would I would use to describe how I felt. Destiny is not really a feeling, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah, that's incredible. Now, did you feel once you found out that you got the role, did you feel any added pressure having to perform it in Rochester, where she was from? You know, that's a great question, Carolyn. I think I had no idea how much of a rock star Susan B. Anthony is to the city of Rochester. And I think, thank God I didn't. Um, I, I was like, oh, her house is there. And like, you know, she lived there, but you know, it's history. Like who's, I don't know. There'll be, people will be interested in it, but I mean, the city of Rochester turned out um, this production and, you know, it's almost a cult. Um, especially when you go to the Susan B. Anthony house, I think that was, that was the first time, honestly, when I showed up there, um, you know, I was like, I am absolutely not telling them that I'm playing Susan B. Anthony. As soon as I walked in there, I was like, oh, this is, these are serious people. (laughs) I am not telling them this. Um, but honestly, it was, uh, it was pretty incredible to do it in Rochester. I mean, I, I, that, that was life changing in a way because I think talk about community stories. I mean, talk about um, civic pride and um, you know, it was Rochester's story in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Well, and it certainly helped that we were doing it um, in 2017, which was the hundredth anniversary of New York state um, having, you know, allowing women to vote. Um, and so that was, that was certainly part of the, the excitement around it for sure. And yes, Rochester loves Susan B. Anthony. Mm -hmm. How did you, how did you prepare for the role? So uh, I, I, I was extremely critical, um, the relationship that I had with the dramaturg who happened to be Jenny Warner, (laughs) you, and I'm not, you know, this, I know you're super humble, Jenny. Um, but, but truly I, I feel like the partnership that we had, um, was, was invaluable to shaping the role. I mean, you, there's so much content, there's so much research. Um, and in a way, I think 
as an actor, you can feel overwhelmed by, by how much material there is. And to have a dramaturg really sort through that and, and help you determine what research and what content is in direct relationship to the play and to the story we're telling. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm telling the story that Matt Smart wrote. Um, right. And so all of the research will certainly inform it, but the specific research that's related to the journey and the arc of the play um, was really most helpful. And then, you know, going, going to her home, go, going to her gravesite, I mean, seeing Pepsi Ketavong's um, Let's Have Tea statue and understanding that that was Matt's um, source of inspiration to write this play. I mean, all of that, the, the primary sources, the, the books that I read, um, all of that informed, informed my work. And then, you know, I looked at Cedric Mates, who was playing Frederick Douglass, and you sort of have to like trust that all of that work is there and then let it go because, you know, you have to be present as an actor and you have to respond to your acting partner in, in real time. Um, I'd also say that, um, you know, Cedric and I have a, a pretty, a pretty deep bond. Um, he's, he's one of my best friends and, mm. um, and we met doing this show and I, and I think the conversations that he and I had throughout the process and by process, I, again, I mean like rehearsal through performance. Um, we had really deep conversations about gender and race and, and those, I think Frederick and Susan did too, frankly, <laughs> you know, so there was a, a parallelism um, that was happening um, throughout the process. Now, not long before all of this COVID-19 took over every aspect of our lives, yes. you were down in Alabama at the Shakespeare Festival doing the same role with, with Cedric again. Mm -hmm. How was it like to return to the role with Cedric opposite you down in Alabama? It was... Um, you know, it was, and, and I will say it wasn't just Cedric, you know, Logan Vaughn was directing it. Matt Smart was there for most of it. Um, Jenny was able to come to opening, which was awesome. Was. Um, and the designers with the exception of, um, the sound designer, everyone wanted to come back and do the play, which I think speaks to the power of the story, um, that everyone was like, okay, I prioritize this project. Um, when we did the agitators, uh, in Rochester, you know, that was, that was when, um, the Me Too movement was really gaining ground and, um, Harvey Weinstein, all of that was coming, was coming out. Um, survivors were telling their story. And so for me, the thread that was really sort of resonant and loud, um, was the story about gender, um, and, and, and women and, um, that was really, really present for me. And not to say that when we did this did the production in Alabama that that wasn't there that was there and then the thread about um race was really loud um largely because uh performing at an Alabama Shakespeare Festival in Montgomery you know that is that is where the equal justice initiative is doing um doing their work where the truth and justice memorial is where the legacy museum is and so it, it had a totally different um resonance um based on the our, our moment in history and based on on the city of montgomery um so it was actually really powerful to go back to the play and i was also older you know so i had lived a little bit more and and had more to bring to the role 
I think it it's fitting that um, you know, looking at it in looking at the play again in Alabama. Um, I know certainly for me, seeing the play on opening after having been to the memorial there um, was uh, it 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 brought the um, conversation around the passage of the 15th amendment um, real, it really highlighted that for me. And, you know, one of the, the probably most controversial questions about Susan B. Anthony is her stance on race. Right. And she's often quoted as having said, I will cut off this right arm of mine before I will ever work or demand the ballot for the Negro and not for the woman. Um, and that's, you know, in this fight over the 15th Amendment. Um, and the agitators, I think, really carefully raises the question about Anthony's racism. And, and I'm interested in um, how how your understanding of her relationship to race has changed after having performed the play twice now, once here in Rochester and once in Alabama. And then, you know, it, is there how can we understand her role with race um, given our understanding of race now? I mean, I, 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 I'm glad that you brought up, you know, that the 15th, all of the stuff about the 15th amendment was, was impactful, even more impactful in, in Montgomery. For me, uh, I would say yes. And all of the stuff about the Atlanta convention in 1895 um, that had a whole other, that last, I mean, it's really, it is the last scene of the play, um, before Frederick dies. I mean, that, that had a whole other echo and resonance. And, um, and I would say that the audience actually, the, the way the audience was listening and responding in that scene was different, um, when it was in Montgomery. Um, I think that, I think that it's really complicated. You know, I, one of the things, and I was, I, I was certainly like going into this whole process, you know, you, you think about her as such a iconic idol, um, feminist. And you sort of, as you, as you investigate her more, you realize she's complex and flawed. And, um, and frankly, the, the, the play taught me, um, in studying her life, in building my version of her, um, in working with Frederick, you know, it taught me to sort of dismantle my own gender and racial biases. Um, and it's hard work and it's uncomfortable work and, um, (laughs) but it's critical work and it's necessary work. And I think, I think you're right, Jenny, that like the, the play does a good job of exposing that. Um, and I think that that's resonant for the audiences. I mean, I spent a lot of time, um, you know, I went to the, the Truth and Justice Memorial, I went to the Legacy Museum, and, and actually Cedric and I did all of that together. Um, we went to Selma together. Um, and all of that really came into the play. Um, just the conversations we would have um, in, in, in visiting those places um, would show up in the play. And we felt it. And I'm not sure, like, if I can really specifically tell you how it showed up, it just, it cut a lot deeper. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was felt in our bones a lot deeper. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I know that's a really complex question to ask, and 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 you're right that what um, I I think what the the any any sort of in depth study of any historical figure kind of ends up showing us how complex they are, and you can't you know sort of look at them in only one context. We have to take them um, uh, take them for all that they are. Right. right. Right, right. You have to you have to look at sort of the 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 good and the and the bad. You know, you can't. It's not just one lens. I mean, that would be a disservice, I think, to her and for us um, to, to do that. I will say that the student audiences, both in you know, I have such faith in the generation beneath me and the generation beneath that generation. I mean. The, the student audiences, both in Rochester and Montgomery, were, were so engaged um, and so willing to ask uncomfortable and complicated questions. I, 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 was, really, I was really blown away, away by the lack of passivity by those audiences. Hmm. And so that gives me a lot of hope. Absolutely. Oh, and I'd also say, how cool is it that I always say the third character missing in The Agitators is Ida B. Wells, and she just won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, that's a, that's a good thing that's come out of, out of this quarantine, out of this pandemic. Um, but all of the Ida B. Wells stuff, too, was, was really resonant in Montgomery. Um, because this, the, the EJI has done work to sort of tell her story and bring her, bring her, um, bring her story to light. Absolutely. I think we need to hear more of her story. Um, Me too. Me too. I'm waiting for that play. I'm waiting for someone to write a play about Ida. Yeah. When you're building one of these new characters, do you have any go-to techniques when you're trying to build a new character as opposed to one that has been produced already? That's a good question. No one's ever asked me that and question. Do you I approach it differently. I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I think I approach it the same way. I'm, I I really believe in um, honoring the story that the playwright has written. So I spend a lot of time with the text. I mean, even even in performance, I go back to the script. I I, I always find something new every time I go back to the page. I I don't abandon those pages really ever. Um, you know, I'm very, I'm very text-based, um, you know, and I, and I do the work of like, how is this character similar to me? How is this character different from me? And that's, that's how I figure out what, um, um, imagination bridges I need to build. You know, what, what do I understand about this character? What don't I understand? And then that's where the imagination work comes into play. I, um, I use Katie Mitchell. She's a, she's a director. I use her book on directing, um, to help. It's actually a book for directors, but it's a great book for actors. And I use how she breaks a, a script down um, for a director. I use it as an actor, um, which really means going through and finding the events. Um, she talks about facts and questions, like what are the facts that have happened um, even before the play for the character? And then what are the questions? And it, it sort of keeps you as an actor from being a playwright. Because I think it's really easy, especially when you're a young actor, to be like, oh, I'm going to think about what this character has for ice cream and for breakfast. And you're like, well, maybe, okay. I mean, sure. But like, there may be other productive things to think about. Um, 
<laughs> you know, so, so I love her book. Um, and I, and I, I really turn to that. And then I always think about the character's deepest wish. Like what is the, what is the thing that drives the, the character that keeps them up at night? Um, and that all of the, all of the work um, in the storytelling should be aligned with that deepest wish. And then you do all that work and you show up in rehearsal and, and are willing to let it go. <laughs> That's the hardest thing, right? Being willing when you walk into the rehearsal room to sort of adapt to what happens in the room. Absolutely. I, I mean, but there's this, you know, when you're a young actor, um, there's this idea that like, okay, I'm cast in a play. So I'm like, I'm going to read it and show up and just be like an open vessel, right? I'm just going to do whatever you know, happens in the room and whatever the director tells me. And, and um, when I teach, you know, when I teach text analysis at the school at Steppenwolf, I think that that's actually a real surprise for people that like, oh no, like you, you can do a lot before the first rehearsal. There's a lot of work that actually has to happen, you know, bef before you go into the room. You know, I, I think most directors, at least the directors I've really loved working with, appreciate an actor who has a point of view and an opinion and has gone through the text and called it and actioned the script and, um, you know, can start from a, from a full place as opposed to a place of just sort of neutrality. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and there's also, I feel like sometimes, um, when you, when you come into the room with that full plate, um, there's a kind of magic that can happen in the rehearsal room where you discover things, um, because you, you're drawing on something, but then you also are drawing on the people around you and the work that they have done. Absolutely. Have you ever, have you ever had an experience where, you know, something magical kind of has come about in the rehearsal room, some new exciting discovery that, um, that changed the way you thought about the character? I mean, all the time. I, you know, I, and, and it's not necessarily like, sometimes the smallest revelations, you know, are, are the most critical ones. I mean, it's not necessarily like, yes, is the answer to it. I mean, all the time, all the time. Um, I'm trying to think if there's a specific one I can give in the agitators. I mean, I thought you were in that room, Jenny. I mean, I feel like it was like constant. I feel like it was <laughs> daily, you know, because we were, we were all sort of investigating and unraveling and, um, and, and figuring it out. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's sort of the miracle and the magic of 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 what we're doing, and maybe the mysticism. See, I'm able to like reconnect my weird med run class back. <laughs> it's a spiritual journey. Absolutely, it's all spiritual. Is there? I, I'm I'm thinking about the fact that we have Carolyn as a co-host today, mm. and I, I'm wondering if there have been any sort of crazy things that you've been asked to do in terms of like when a production is happening. Have you had experiences where you're like, okay, and now you're going to run from here to here? Like, you know, what what kinds of crazy um, production requirements have you had, or weird foods you've had to eat, or? anything sort of surprising like that. Oh yes, and Jiva has been the, the gift giver of all of those. Don't fall in the hole, Madeline. <laughs> Don't fall in the hole. Uh, Carolyn, Carolyn is a, a tech genius and 
Um, she, you know, she's an actor's dream uh, in terms of a, a of a TD and someone to to have your back on the stage. But when we did the production of The Agitators, uh, you know, there were a lot of moving set pieces. Um, there was a trap that came up and down. You know, because the span of the play is over a huge amount of time, we had to figure out a way to uh, change settings very quickly. Um, and so there were a lot of like okay, stand here, don't move here, because if you take three steps backwards, you will fall to your death. Um, <laughs> so uh, Carolyn kept us safe through all of that. There were a lot of moving parts to that. And really, really quick, um, the, the costume uh, crew at Jiva is just remarkable. I mean, there were really some pretty extraordinary costume changes that were happening during the agitators um, that they're in no way, given the period costumes, I could ever have done them by myself. Mm -hmm. um, so that was pretty amazing. And then in terms of food, I mean, I ate Thanksgiving dinner 50 times, uh, you know, over a two and a half month period when I did the humans um, in the co-production between Jiva and Syracuse Stage. Um, so I got real friendly with Thanksgiving food and, and, and uh, much to my dismay, I am not a Thanksgiving food lover. Um, oh, no. <laughs> so, so I had to, I had to learn to love it very quickly. <laughs> well, if you were, you're not anymore, given that you had to eat it 50 times. Yes. 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 But we got creative. I mean, instead of turkey, we had a rotisserie chicken from Wegmans. Um, you know, I think we all were like, okay, eating, eating mashed potatoes like twice in a day, like could be a little fatiguing um, to consume mashed potatoes constantly. So we got butternut squash and, um, you know, we all, we all certainly had the performances where we, you know, didn't eat enough before we did the show. And so we were actually like hungry when we got to that part. And then we would have mouths full of food while we were trying to do the scene. So we all, we all navigated, navigated that. Um, but you know, what's so funny is like thinking about that play right now. And in light of being in the pandemic, it's like, God, you know, how amazing is it going to be when we all get back and like, we watch actors like sit and eat like a big Thanksgiving dinner together. And like, how crazy is it going to be when we see like two actors like run across stage and kiss each other? Like how amazing is it? I mean, it's just going to be pretty, the smallest things will be so stunning. Just, just the ability to sit in a theater and watch someone do that is going to be amazing. <laughs> Like that's really what I'm looking forward to is just sitting in a theater and experiencing it with people. Yeah. It's going to be really nice. I mean, you see on TV, I think this is a running trope now for a lot of people. You see people shaking hands and it's, it's so powerful. And also makes you go, stop, don't touch. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Absolutely. Social distancing. There are some shows I watch and I'm like, you shouldn't be so close to each other. Well, I say there is definitely a BC before Corona. And hold, please. Hold, hold, hold. Well, speaking of Corona, um, one of the things that I know you have done during this time is performing in Alabama Shakespeare Festival's 22 Homes. Mm. Um, and uh, I know that one of our... our earlier guests on the podcast was Elizabeth Gregory Wilder, who wrote yes. one of those uh, monologues. But talk about what your experience of that process was and who you worked with. Sure. Um, you know, it's been, it's been, a, 
it's been such a complicated relationship to theater right now because what we do is all about being together live and and that magic of, of being present and you know our heartbeats sinking and all of that um and so it's been frustrating um that i think there is this sort of rush that we all feel as theater makers to like produce something and make something and then like put it out in the ether and into the internet and um you know and i certainly understand the impulse because i have it um and then i also think that there's a lot of value in being still and knowing that it'll come back and that when theater comes back it's going to be really exciting and unknown and interesting and i, I don't even know what it's going to be um so I, I think it's you know it's a complicated time for theater makers but i will say one of the things that was so great about 22 homes was just the realization that collaboration can really happen theater collaboration can happen over a digital platform um it was really great i, I collaborated with daryl fazio who's a atlanta-based playwright um and i'd never met her and it it turned out to be like this like lovely friendship and she sent me plays that she's written and you know she learned about me as a theater maker and 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 so that was that was such a sort of cathartic release for me to to just collaborate and talk to another artist and to meet an artist i had never met i mean that's that's something exciting that i think can happen now is is we can we can meet other artists meet new artists um our circles can broaden um the idea of that of that festival is was that the playwright they were all southern playwrights elizabeth gregory wilder was one lauren gunderson will arbery um quentin corkrell i mean it was a really sort of wide smattering of of southern playwrights and they wrote a monologue um based on the theme of home and then the actor um performed that monologue um so it was nice to feel you know that i was flexing my muscles um and nice to be in conversation do you have any hopes of what's might happen once we're allowed to return to creating the arts that we're so longing for right now oh i think i we have to have hope you know um i think that that's what's going to get us through i mean i i know that i'm grieving i think we're all mourning in some ways um for the jobs we've lost you know there are jobs that i'm not going to do because of the pandemic um you know, there, we are in a period of mourning and I think sometimes when you're grieving, it can be really hard to process in the moment. Um, it's hard to, to sort of see it through, but I have tremendous faith, um, in, in the arts. I have tremendous faith in theater. It's resilient. Um, it's survived a lot. And, um, if we've learned anything from these really difficult moments in history, I mean, there's usually an artistic explosion that happens. If you think post-World War II, if you think, you know, of all these sort of like large moments in history, there's a real spirit of innovation that comes out of it. Um, you know, what, the, the form may look a little bit different, you know, when we get back to the theater, like where audience sits and how actors are in relationship to each other. I mean, I, I I think we can sort of all, it's easy to say, no, I want what I had before because it feels good and it's comforting, but we have to be courageous and brave and step into the unknown because I think we're going to find some pretty cool things. I mean, the bones and the foundation will, of theater will always be there, but, um, 
I think it's going to be uncomfortable too. I mean, you know, we're right now in our, in our culture and in our society, like a lot of inequities are being exposed and it's, and that's part of the grief and the mourning. And, um, I think some inequities and, and, and difficult conversations are being exposed about theater and, and the, the theater, theater as theater artists and theater institutions either have to run towards those conversations that are difficult or turn away. And I think the ones that move towards the difficult conversations are the ones that are going to survive. Yeah, I think you're right. What are the, some of the inequities that you're seeing most clearly right now? I mean, you know, I, th- I think, uh, I mean, so many, I mean, in terms of like people, the, lo- the mile long lines you see for people needing food, um, you know, the unemployment, I mean, it just, it, it, it it can go on and on and on. I mean, that's a whole other, like, you know, five hour podcast that we, we do. I think, um, if we're looking really at, at theater, you know, there's a lot of conversations around, um, you know, what do institutions need? Well, also what do artists need? What do the individual artists communities need? Um, and that can't be forgotten because we can't make theater without the artists. Um, I'm encouraged though. You know, I think there's going to be conversations around fair wage. I think there's going to be conversations, you know, uh, I know actors equity union is really stepping up and having hard conversations. Um, you know, I think, uh, programming is going to have challenging conversations, you know, uh, it's, it's a critical moment for all of us from the administration to the artists and the deepest, wildest, uh, dream I have is that, you know, the federal government and, and then there's sort of a national response to the arts. You know, that's the, that's the biggest dream I have. Um, and maybe I'll see it happen in my lifetime. I love that optimism and that hope. What, yeah. what, what do you need right now to, um, to feel taken care of and to feel like, you know, once it's possible to return to the hospital, to the rehearsal hall, that you're able to do that with your whole self? I mean, honestly, the, the opportunity to do this has been really good for me. Um, in thinking about, um, my journey as an artist and thinking about process, um, and being in, being in conversation with other artists, I think is really important. It's easy to feel alone right now and to just, be in rapport, be in relationship with people is, is, is a real gift. Um, more of this, more conversation. And are you finding joy in something right now? I am. I mean, Chicago, uh, has finally, uh, gotten warmer. Um, (laughs) I notice how green trees are Mm. and I notice, um, I'd like, I just noticed spring for the first time in a more profound way. Um, you know, nature keeps going. And I think when we're sort of, we, we sort of have to be still right now and be a little bit quieter. And so the wonder of, um, the wonder that the world keeps going, that the seasons keep changing. And, you know, I, I, a lot of people say they hear birds more. And I think that that's true. I hear, I hear birds in a new way. Um, I look at the sky more. Um, in Chicago, there's a there's a breed or species of birds that has come back to the lake that hasn't been there in years upon years, and um, that just makes me want to weep. <laughs> um, 
So, so that's, that's joy to me. Absolutely. That's so joyful. Well, thank you, Madeline, so much for being a part of this conversation today and uh, for joining Carolyn and I for this podcast. It's been a really wonderful, wonderful conversation. It's given me joy. This is five minutes, everyone. Five minutes, please. It was so wonderful to talk with Madeline today. I love hearing her insight on what's going on because it's so broad and she's so open to accepting everything and processing it so well and being able to articulate exactly what's going on. Absolutely. I love this Coursera class that she's taking right now. Um, and the fact that, you know, one of the things that she talked about was sort of feeling like you, you're never done. Um, you're always improving. And I think that's clear in what she's reading and thinking about, um, even during this time when we're all in our remote homes. Yeah. And I think that's going around a lot right now. Like how can, you know, we can't necessarily see one another, but you know, a lot of people right now, including myself, we're spending a lot of time going, what can I improve? Just small things before being able to go back and rejoin the world, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it was great to talk about um, the agitators again. Uh, you know, it's been a couple of years since since we produced that play here at Jiva. Yeah. And just wonderful to... Um, to think about the play and those characters and to think about what they mean to us right now and the questions that we can ask because of it. Well, I I think it's lovely that they were able to do it down in Montgomery because Montgomery is so, has also such a rich historical um, history based in, you know, all sorts of civil rights movement things, just almost as much as, you know, this area is based in the women's suffrage movement. And it's so, it's nice to get that kind of a perspective on the same show that also yeah. deals with those issues. I agree. I think even more so in Montgomery because it was such an epicenter of the slave movement and, yeah. you know, um, not movement, sale. Um, and then the the way that they are trying to reclaim the town and reclaim the history um, is really important. And so to have the play resonate in both of those cities both there and here, um, I think is really critical. Absolutely. Thank you, everybody. Great show. Out of the Rehearsal Hall is a podcast production of Jiva Theater Center in Rochester, New York. I'm Jenny Werner. And I'm Carolyn Pike. Andrew Mark Wilhelm composed our theme song and is our audio engineer. Our artwork was created by graphic designer Amanda Rixens. Today's stage manager was Frank Cavallo. I want to especially thank today's co-host, Carolyn Pike, and our guest, Madeline Lambert. If you've enjoyed listening to Out of the Rehearsal Hall, please consider leaving a review for us on your podcast platform or share the podcast with your friends. And if you're listening to this before June 5th, we hope you'll join us in our annual gala virtual this year at jivacurtaincall.com, where you'll also find out more about this podcast, our happiness hours, and other virtual programming. And there's more on our blog at jivajournal.wordpress.com. And we'll see you next time we're out of the rehearsal hall. Great work, everybody. Thank you. <laughs>